This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right. Well, welcome to session six of our study of the books of Luke and Acts. Uh, in this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter six. So, Last week, uh, we focused primarily on Yeshua's visit to his hometown in Nazareth. We saw that that visit kind of set a paradigm for Yeshua's ministry in several ways. First of all, uh, Yeshua reads from Isaiah 61, right? This passage uh, that's describing this anointed one who would come and do two things primarily. He's going to come and preach, you know, get, preach good news to the poor. Uh, and proclaim uh, release or uh, forgiveness, aphesis, and he's going to come and heal, right? So so these two things, uh, teaching and healing, really define Yeshua's ministry, and we've seen lots of examples of that already in um, since, uh, since the start of Yeshua's ministry in Luke. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second way that Yeshua, or the second way that this story about Yeshua's visit to Nazareth um, is a sort of paradigm, is the response of the people in Nazareth foreshadows the overall response of Israel to Yeshua's ministry. Instead of receiving his message, they reject him and seemingly try to kill him. Right, and then the third. Uh, way is that, and this is anticipating the book of Acts, that this rejection of Yeshua's message is somehow tied with that message going out to the Gentiles. And that, I mean, that's going to be something that's going to be developed in Acts, and we'll see that much more strongly. But we're, we've, we've seen little hints of that here and there uh, already in Luke. Um, something about, you know, this message going out to Gentiles. So that's what we were looking at last week. Uh, after after that, we also looked at some instances that Luke records of Yeshua teaching and healing. Uh, Luke says, you know, he went to this place and he taught in their synagogues and he healed people. And we see this repeated over and over again, right? But we don't get a whole lot of the content of Yeshua's teaching. We, we see uh, Luke describing the fact that Yeshua taught, but... Uh, so far, we haven't we haven't come across a lot of the content of that teaching, and that's going to change this week. Uh, we're going to look more in depth at what it is that Yeshua was actually teaching, and and uh, especially in this this passage, uh, Luke six twenty to forty nine, which is known as the Sermon on the Plain. We'll talk about why it's called that in just a little bit. Uh, so yeah, the goal today is to try and get to the end of chapter 6 in Luke. So let's dive in. Um, Before we look at chapter 6, I want to back up a little bit and look at uh, Yeshua's calling of his disciples, right? So at the beginning of Luke chapter 5, we we have uh, the story of when Luke calls the, the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these four fishermen, right? And then if you jump down to uh, verse 27, uh, we have the calling of a disciple called Levi. And Matthew's gospel, uh, it says that his name was Matthew. So uh, we understand that to be 
the Matthew who's mentioned among the twelve, right, and who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I guess he, his other name was Levi. That's that's the traditional explanation. Uh, so what I want to do is let's start by reading uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 35. And could I get a volunteer to read those verses? I can read them. Sure, that'd be great. So, so Luke 5, 27 to 35. Luke chapter 5, 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To which verse did you want, Ben? Um, up to verse 35. 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Great. Thank you for reading. Okay, so in in these verses, we're encountering a bit of a a tension going on between uh, Yeshua and the Pharisees. And this tension is over Yeshua's uh, associations and his choice of disciples, right? So the Pharisees, uh, they raised two uh, objections. And the first one is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Right? I saw that in verse 30. And the second objection is, why do your disciples not fast? Yeshua offers two responses. Uh, the first response we saw is he, he talks about you know, only the sick need a doctor, right? I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And I think there's a little bit of a veiled rebuke going on there. If if you look at verse uh, verses 31 and 32, uh, remember going back to this uh, passage from Isaiah that Yeshua quotes when he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth talks about how he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, right? And we're going to see this theme come up again, but what happens when you define yourself as already having everything you need? Uh, if, if you're not if you're not one of the poor, then did Messiah really come for you? And, and so, you know, if if you define yourself in a self-righteous way, you know, you say, I'm righteous, I don't I don't need uh, whatever. 
I don't need to repent, then you're defining yourself outside the scope of Yeshua's ministry. So I think there's a bit of a, a rebuke going on here of the Pharisees. Um, yeah, and then so this the second objection, uh, why do your disciples not fast, right? And Yeshua replies about uh, this, you know, the, the wedding, uh, the wedding guests. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And of course, you know, the imagery here is that Yeshua is the bridegroom, right? And then there's uh, the day coming when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. So this is not putting down fasting, obviously, right? Yeah, other places, uh, like in Matthew, Yeshua talks about what to do when you fast, implying that we would on occasion fast, that believers would fast. Uh, but the critique that the Pharisees are making is, you know, you guys are, are eating and drinking and partying and, you know, doing this stuff with tax collectors and sinners. Well, how come you're not more ascetic and uh, austere and, and, you know, and Yeshua is defending his disciples and is defending his choice of disciples. And then we get to this interesting parable. Uh, this is probably the the first uh, full parable that we encounter in in Luke's gospel, and it is the parable of the the patches and the wineskins. So let's just look at that quickly here. Starting in verse thirty six, uh, he told them a parable: No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good, or some versions say the old is better. Okay, so what's that talking about? Well, the common Christian interpretation of this parable is that Jesus came to establish a, a new religion. Uh, I pulled this quote as a representation of uh, sort of the traditional viewpoint. This is from Leon Morris's commentary on Luke. It says, Jesus is not simply patching up Judaism. He is teaching something radically new. If the attempt is made to constrict this within the old wineskins of Judaism, example, for example, by imposing fasting, the result will be disastrous. So, uh, in, in this interpretation, Judaism and Torah observance are the old, right? The, the old wineskins, the, the old garments, and those things are simply incompatible with Yeshua's new covenant teaching. Of course, the biggest problem with this interpretation is as it has very little to do with the context, right? We're in the middle of talking about, you know, the, these critiques against Yeshua's disciples, right? I want to uh, suggest a, a possible parallel to Yeshua's parable, <laughs> And this comes from the Mishnah. Here's a, here's a parable from the Mishnah. It says, Elisha ben Abuya uh, says, He who learns when a child, what is he like? Ink put down on a clean piece of paper. And he who learns when an old man, what is he like? 
ink put down on a paper full of erasures. Rabbi Yossi ben Rav Judah of Kafar Hababli says, He who learns from children, what is he like? One who eats sour grapes and drinks fresh wine. And he who learns from old men, what is he like? He who eats ripe grapes and drinks vintage wine. Rabbi says, do not look at the bottle, but at what is in it. You can have a new bottle full of old wine and an old bottle, which has not got even new wine. So this is, I mean, there's a bunch of parables thrown in here together, right? But one of the things they all have in common is they're talking about teaching and students, right? So the different kinds of, uh, you know, the first parable is comparing a student who uh, hasn't, you know, already, uh, who, who's a student who's young is like a fresh sheet of paper, right? It's easy to write on it and it's easy to read off of it. But uh, an old person who starts to to study in the rabbinic academies, you know, he's already got a lot of knowledge tucked away and has to relearn some things and and uh, it's it's going to be a little less legible you know it's like a smudgy piece of paper that has all these erasures and um yeah in the in the last parable is talking about you know uh old wine versus new wine and and comparing that to the the containers that hold house these to different types of students or teachers right so uh i think this is uh uh, helpful and uh, helps us understand. I'm not suggesting that these parables date back to the time of Yeshua, but I think this represents a context within first century Judaism or early Judaism that would have been uh, memorable to the people that Yeshua was talking to. So Yeshua tells this parable I would like to suggest in in response to the Pharisees' objections about his choice of disciples, right? Uh, you know, you look at it in context. They raise these two subject two objections, and Yeshua gives these two responses. And this parable falls in as one of these responses. Why did Yeshua choose common fishermen and tax collectors uh, to be his disciples instead of choosing the intellectual elite, right? Those who had already been through training in rabbinic academies and uh, I mean, not that there was rabbinic academies is a bit of a uh, anachronism to date that back into the first century, but but um, I should say Pharisaic training or that sort of thing, right? So why did Yeshua choose these common folk? Well, I think that's what this parable is explaining, right? You can't take uh, you don't take new teaching, a new interpretation of Torah and try to instill it within people who already have an old interpretation. Uh, at least that, that's not his strategy in making disciples, right? His strategy is to take people who are unlearned and who are clean slates, so to speak, a fresh sheet of paper that he can write on and that he can teach and form the way he wants to. And... This is this is one example, and we're going to see others come up as we go, of God choosing the things. I, I, Paul talks about this in Corinthians, how God chose the things that were weak, the things that were uh, nothing, the things that were inglorious, to shame those who were in positions of power and, and honor and um, prestige in the eyes of this world, right? 
God takes things that are simple. God takes things that um, from a human standpoint seem almost foolish, but he uses that to confound the wisdom of the wise, Paul talks about, right? I think that's the sort of thing we got going on here. And this interpretation, I would like to suggest, fits the context a lot better. So we have uh, this choosing of uh, several disciples. When we get to Luke chapter 6, then Yeshua kind of narrows his group of disciples, uh, at least his core group, down to 12 in Luke 6, starting in verse 12. Let's jump down there. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he called apostles. And then it goes on to name them. Now, we skipped over another part, which offers another objection to Yeshua's choice of disciples. And that's one of the Sabbath controversies at the beginning of chapter six. Uh, I'd like to come back to that in a future session. So for now, we're going to uh, hold that on the back burner, and we'll come back to that later in this in this uh, series. But uh, so here we come to uh, Yeshua, uh, you know, spending all night in prayer, seeking God's direction about, you know, which are the 12 that, uh, which are the, the disciples that he is to invest the most of his time and teaching into, and he ends up choosing these 12 and designating them as um, apostolu, uh, apostles, uh, shlichim, right? Emissaries. These are like almost like legal representations. These are the ones who are going to represent him uh, and his teaching uh, faithfully to others, right? So uh, now, by the way, how many disciples did Yeshua have? If you skip down to verse 17, he came down with them from, so he was up on the mountain, then he comes down and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. Obviously, there there were more than 12 disciples. And actually in in, uh, Luke uh, chapter 10, a couple chapters later, Yeshua is going to commission 70 disciples and send them out to preach and to heal. Right, the other gospels actually don't record that event. Uh, you know, if you if you read uh, Mark or Matthew, uh, you you sort of get the impression that, uh, or it's easy to get the impression that there are only twelve disciples. That those were it. Right, he didn't have any others. But if you read carefully, and 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 Luke brings this out very clearly, Yeshua had a great following, a, a huge crowd of people that were following and learning from him. So his his disciple circle was was very large, but he had to um, define a core group that he wanted to invest the most of his time and, and efforts into, and that becomes this group known as the Twelve, right? These are the only ones that are designated apostles in the Gospels. Okay, let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount, or plain. Um, You'll notice that in Luke, it says he came down with them and stood on a level place, right? So first he goes up to the mountain, he calls his his 12 disciples, then he comes down 
and stands on is a plane, right? A level place. And uh, uh, in Matthew, it's it's a little different, right? In Matthew, it talks about how um, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's this, uh, it, we get the impression that it's, it's, uh, it, you almost get the impression from Matthew that he's he's teaching just to his disciples at this point, right? Um, so I, that's why in Matthew they call it the Sermon on the Mount, because it says he went up on a mountain and begins to proclaim teaching. And of course, I think here there are overtones of uh, Moses going up a mountain to receive teaching and instruction from God and then proclaiming that to, to the people. Right, Yeshua comes as the ultimate interpreter of Moses, uh, but uh, by the time you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it talks about the crowd's reaction to his teaching. So obviously, he wasn't just talking to his disciples at this point. Um, so, yeah, what you know, what do we do with this discrepancy? Was he on a mountain when he gave this teaching, or was he on a level place when he gave this teaching? Maybe both. I mean, he, he probably taught some of his teachings more than once, right? I don't think we have to try and limit it. All right. So, is Yeshua teaching on a mountain or a plane? Well, maybe both. I don't think we have to try and limit it to one or the other, uh, because Yeshua, I'm sure, taught uh, some of his teachings multiple times, right? Okay. Um, I want to sh to look at a chart because uh, what we have here in, in Luke chapter 6 this, this teaching that Yeshua gives uh, virtually the entire thing from verse 20 to the end of the chapter is uh, given also in the book of Matthew during Matthew's chapters 5 to 7 which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount so I want to look at some of the parallels between these two passages, right? We've got in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7. In, in the book of Luke, we have the Sermon on the Plain, which is the, uh, the last bit of chapter 6 in Luke. And so in this chart, uh, I tried to color coordinate it so that all the purple, this represents the Sermon on the Mount, all the green represents the Sermon on the Plain. So this is ordered in um, the following the order that Matthew gives it in. You can see that both Matthew and Luke start with Beatitudes or, or blessings, right? Um, but then Luke jumps into woes, and that's something that Matthew doesn't have. Mark doesn't have either of those, by the way. Um, so uh, there are some things that all three have in common, but some things that are unique to Matthew or to Luke. Um, in this case, most of it is found in Matthew. Some of it is not found in Luke, but uh, some of it is paralleled in chapter 6, but some of what Matthew puts in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke disperses throughout his gospel, right? So we have this saying about being the salt of the earth. Uh, in Matthew, he says, you are the salt of the earth. If salt becomes unsavory, how can it be made salty again? Luke has that saying in uh, chapter 14 of his gospel, so he puts it in a different place, right? Uh, the light of the world, 
right? Talking about being the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Uh, Mark and Luke both have some of these sayings, but they put them in different places in, in their Gospels, right? So, yeah, the core that we have that's common to Matthew and Luke is we have the Beatitudes, we have Yeshua's teaching on retaliation, right? Don't take vengeance and, um, you know, someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. We have this teaching about loving your enemies, about do not judge, don't, uh, you know, the speck in, in your brother's eye. Ask, or, sorry, ask, seek, and knock, that's in a different place. The golden rule, both of these are in this sermon in Luke and in Matthew, but uh, Luke puts it in a slightly different place than Matthew does. And uh, the message, you, you will know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, the wise and the foolish builders. So that's, that's what we have that's common to both Matthew and Luke between these two different sermons, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. So uh, what I want to do is just for a moment here, we're going to focus on Matthew for a little bit. Uh, and then we'll come back and look at, at Luke and some of the things that are unique about the way Luke presents it. But I, I want us to turn, if you have your Bible handy, uh, open it to Matthew, uh, well, Matthew 5 to 7 in that, in that area. And I want to ask a, a couple questions. First of all, what is, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at Matthew for now. So in, in, in Matthew's gospel, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Why does he uh, present this teaching and what's its implications for us as followers of Yeshua? Well, there are a number of historical approaches to this sermon. And I uh, want to just outline some of them here quickly. Uh, so one approach to the Sermon on the Mount uh, is that the purpose of the sermon is to be obeyed literally. Yeshua gives this teaching, and he expects his followers to keep it. Now, it may come as a surprise to you that anyone would hold to any other position. I mean, why would Yeshua say this if he doesn't expect his followers to actually keep it? Uh, it most Protestant Christians have actually assumed that Yeshua ne never meant for all believers to literally obey this sermon. Um Maybe that's a shock to you, and maybe it isn't. But uh, so this this idea that there there are some that throughout history have held that Yeshua gave the Sermon on the Mount to be obeyed literally. Right? Uh, this is the position that a lot of the early church fathers had, and the Anabaptists, uh, Leo Tolstoy, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. These are the kinds of people who held to this viewpoint. And, uh, and by the way, those last three, the Anabaptists, Tolstoy, and Bonhoeffer, one thing they all had in common, if you didn't know this, they were all pacifists, right? Take a look at Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And it goes on. 
So a number of interpreters have said, well, if we're going to obey this literally, then that means we're not allowed to fight back. You know, we're, we're, we have to take a nonviolent stance. We're not allowed to participate in warfare. Uh, we should not be doing these things. Here's a quote from Menno Simons. Menno Simons was, uh, his followers became known as Mennonites, right? That's where the Mennonites come from. He was a prominent Anabaptist leader. He says, Peter was commanded to sheath his sword. All Christians are commanded to love their enemies, to do good unto those who abuse and persecute them, to give the mantle when the cloak is taken, the other cheek when one is struck. Tell me, how can a Christian defend scripturally retaliation, rebellion, war, striking, slaying, torturing, stealing, robbing, and plundering, and burning cities, and conquering countries? Right, so uh, Menno Simons, he says, Let's take this literally, right? Let's follow the, the Sermon on the Mount literally. Okay, so that's, that's the one position here, that it is to be obeyed literally. Um, now, there are people, of course, who believe that we're supposed to obey this literally who aren't pacifists, but uh, a lot of pacifists will look to the Sermon on the Mount to support uh, their beliefs, right? Okay, um, Here's another position, that the purpose of the sermon is to lead us to recognize our inability and rely on God's grace. This is the, class, the classic Lutheran position. Take a look at the last verse in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew five forty-eight. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, People that hold to this position, they say, you know, you read through the Sermon on the Mount and, you're, and you realize this is an impossible standard. No one can ever live up to this. Be perfect like God is perfect? How, how could anyone ever do that? That's impossible. Therefore, Yeshua never meant for us to actually literally keep this stuff. What he, you know, instead... Uh, the, reading the sermon is supposed to prick our conscience to realize that we can never live up to God's standard and lead us to confess our situation to God and rely on his mercy. Has anyone ever heard this before, um, this viewpoint? It's kind of similar to um, sometimes you encounter this sentiment among evangelicals today that God doesn't want us to follow a list of rules but to have a relationship with him, right? So if you interpret the Sermon on the Mount as a list of rules to follow, you've missed the mark, and that's not the purpose of the sermon. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us that we can never live up to a list of rules, and instead, God's calling us to have a relationship with him and rely on his mercy. Okay, that's another position. A third opinion is the purpose of the sermon is to emphasize the need for love, but the details are peripheral. Uh, this is the approach of classic Protestant liberalism, theological liberalism, right? So, so they would point to uh, the middle of the sermon, on, or towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, actually, in Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So here we have the golden rule, right? Do unto others what you would want them to do to you. And 
this is the law and the prophets. That means, you know, if if you follow this rule, you don't really need to any, you don't really need to follow the details, right? All these details are like the husk, but the the seed inside that's being sheathed by this husk, that that kernel of truth is to love, to love other people, right? And so if you can kept, capture that kernel, then the husk doesn't really matter and we can really, we can just throw that away, right? Um, it's all about love. The uh, fourth opinion uh, is that the Sermon on the Mount was a short-lived attempt to usher in the kingdom. Uh, this position is associated most with a scholar named Albert Schweitzer. He lived from 1875 to 1965. Uh, Schweitzer, he he had an interesting uh, viewpoint. Uh, he, he's not exactly a conservative uh, fundamentalist scholar. He's uh, So uh, we're going to have some issues with what he says. But uh, Schweitzer argued that Yeshua... Jesus believed the world was about to end and God would establish a literal kingdom on earth right away. Unfortunately, Jesus was wrong, Schweitzer argues. And instead of becoming king, he ended up dying, right? And Christianity invented, was invented by Jesus' followers after his death as an attempt to keep his message alive. So, Schweitzer is going to argue that the Sermon on the Mount was never intended to be a long-term ethic for Christians. It was meant only as a temporary measure to try and usher in the kingdom, right? I mean, Yeshua thought the world was about to end. God's kingdom is coming. Let's have this. This is an interim kind of uh, attempt to usher in that kingdom, and it didn't work. And so it would be impractical and wrong-headed uh, to say that we're supposed to actually keep it today. It was never meant to be a long-term uh, thing. Uh, and the fifth uh, possible purpose that people have argued for is that the Sermon on the Mount is a code of law for the future millennial kingdom. This is actually the classic dispensationalist approach. Because according to dispensationalism... Jesus gave this sermon during the dispensation of law. But after Yeshua's death and resurrection, we entered into the, into the dispensation of grace in the age of the church. However, when Yeshua returns, we will enter a different dispensation, the millennial kingdom, in which the Sermon on the Mount will once again apply literally. So in other words, the Sermon on the Mount does not apply directly to Christians today, but there are principles we can derive from from it, just like, uh, you know, the, there's principles you can derive from the Old Testament, but it it doesn't function as law for us. That's what the classic dispensationalists would argue. Uh, modern dispensationalists don't necessarily hold to that, but that was one prominent position. So, okay, looking at this, which of these five interpretations of the sermon seems most likely to you, and why? Well, I'd say the closest would be number one, but there's a little bit of uh, recognize our inability, too. So. <coughs> yeah. Well, 
I, I, I agree. I think, I think, uh, in my opinion, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is quite decisive. Take a look at Matthew 7. Um, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's, it's not, so in other words, paying lip service is not enough. You, actually, you have to actually do God's will. And then go down to verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house. Uh, but, you know, the one who hears these words and doesn't do them is a foolish man, right? What's the implication? Are we supposed to actually do this or not? I, I, you know, in my opinion, it's pretty clear from those verses that Yeshua expects those who hear this sermon to put it into practice. He wants us to do it. Any, any dissenting opinions, feel free to, to jump in there if you want or if you have any other thoughts on that. Well, Ben, I would, I would agree with you that uh, it is to be obeyed literally. I think maybe context does mean something both um, chronologically and culturally. You know, what what do the idioms mean uh, to the people who were the audience that he was speaking to? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, we have to have to be careful not to just um, assume or impose a 21st century mindset or culture upon these words and then interpret them in that light, right? Um, there's, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's not, we're not supposed to try and excuse these as, uh, you know, as, oh, it's all dependent on, on a culture, uh, that no longer exists, so we don't need to do it anymore, right? Like, obviously, there's, there's, uh, the cultural context is important, but it doesn't um, erase the import of of these words, right? So, um, one thing, uh, and and this I think is a bit of a, there's a common misunderstanding of Matthew five forty eight, where Yeshua says, "You must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Uh, you know, in, in English, that term perfect, you know, it's who's perfect, right? No one can be perfect. And, but I don't think that's, that's the point that Yeshua is trying to get at here, right? We have, you know, this term, uh, let me see if I can pull it up. So in Greek, you must be tell you you know, literally, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you could also translate that as mature. There are places where it's, it's used to refer to someone who is mature. Um, perfect, you know, because it says, uh, like your father, your heavenly father is teleos, is perfect, um, or, or complete, maybe is a better way of saying it. I, I think in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew term underlying this that we need to be thinking of is the word tam. And, and this word is used often uh, in scripture applied to righteous individuals, right? It talks about how Job was righteous and blameless. We saw at the beginning of Luke uh, that Zechariah and Elizabeth 
were righteous and blameless in following Torah. Now, does that mean they never, ever made a mistake in their whole lives? No, of course not, right? That's not what this term is trying to say. But they, they were walking wholeheartedly with God. They were following him, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes I think we overemphasize the fact that we all have sinned uh, and fallen short of the glory of God to the point where it's no longer possible to live righteously before God. And then we come ac- across passages in the t- in scripture that exhort us to live righteously before God and we are suddenly scratching our heads like, how can you do that? I thought that's impossible. Well, I think we're missing the point if we come to that conclusion that it's impossible to live righteously before God because he calls us to. And by the way, this is quoting the Torah, right? Um, or paraphrasing the Torah, you know, be holy as I am holy. We see that in Leviticus 11 and Leviticus uh, uh, 18, I think it is, or 20. Um, it shows up in, in, uh, in Leviticus a couple times. Be holy as I am holy. Uh, so we're called to imitate God. And just because we will never reach a state of perfection doesn't mean that we should not be pursuing uh, becoming more and more godlike in our character. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, this passage, this, this is the verse that people tend to point to to say we can never live up to this. And I think that is relying on a misinterpretation of what this is actually saying. And as we'll see, Luke has a, a bit of a different spin on on that. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. So I, I guess one lingering question for us is, what about pacifism? Um, maybe let's hold on to that, uh, and we'll address it when it comes up as we're going through Luke. Okay, so... Another question is, what, how does the sermon function in context? If we go back to Matthew uh, 4, verse 17, verse 23, talks about how Yeshua, from that time Yeshua began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying the same thing that John the Baptist said, right? Jump down to verse... Uh, verse 23 and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and it goes on and then we encounter right away chapters 5 to 7 where Matthew gives this lengthy um, teaching of Yeshua the sermon on the mount and I'm going to suggest that this sermon somehow relates to that mission of preaching the gospel of the kingdom that somehow it's related to this message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Let's go back to Luke now. Uh, in and we saw this uh, this verse last week in Luke chapter four, verse forty three. Yeshua said to them, "I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose." Right? He says uh, when he quotes that passage from Isaiah. He says, God sent me, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Here, this is the good news of the kingdom. And right away, when we get to uh, the first verse in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon in the Plain, Yeshua mentions the kingdom. 
And so there's something about this sermon that is related to the kingdom and to repentance. Let's come back to this thought in just a bit. Okay, let's look at Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. And could I get a volunteer to read these verses? Luke 6, 20 to 26. He said 20 to 26. 20 to 26? Yep, that's right. Uh, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I want to compare these verses that we just read with, uh, with what we see in Matthew. So the, the version of the Beatitudes in Matthew, I think, is a little more uh, uh, popular or well-known. Uh, seems like that's, that's the version that people often go to. Uh, and Luke has, uh, has some differences, and, and I think there are, uh, there's intent. There, there are intentional differences going on here. But uh, just uh, from looking at, the, at these two, what are some of the differences that you notice between Matthew's Beatitudes and Luke's? Feel free to fire off any suggestions that come to mind. Uh, one thing I see is in Matthew, when it talks about poor, it says poor in spirit. And in Luke, it just says poor. Mm -hmm. And when it talks about hunger, it says hunger and righteousness in Matthew, and just says hunger or hunger. So. Luke seems to just stick to the more, more, I mean, you could just leave it at the physical, poverty and hunger, and Matthew takes it uh, kind of into another realm, uh, the spiritual or the, uh, you know, righteousness and and, and uh, poverty of spirit and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's one difference. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really uh, significant difference. Uh thing to notice it, you know it almost seems like in um and this is this is one of the things that uh we sometimes struggle as we're trying to interpret the beatitudes are these these conditions that yeshua is describing are they things that we're supposed to be striving for or are they unfortunate circumstances that uh, happen involuntarily to us right and, and you kind of with the difference between Matthew and Luke, it sort of seems like Matthew would be easier to interpret as 
these are character traits we're supposed to strive for, whereas in Luke, these are uh, involuntary, unfortunate circumstances that, you, you, you know, we, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Any other differences? I'm not sure if this is uh, just the way the English comes out, but uh, in Matthew, it's it's always referred to as they, their, uh, theirs, um, and in, in Luke, it's all it's all you. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, in Greek. We have. Let's go to the first one here. Makariud, um, blessed, or in Hebrew, ashrei. Blessed are the poor, uptuhu, um, because yours is the kingdom of God. So uh, this translation adds, blessed are you who are poor, to, to try and make it flow a little better in English. But literally, it's just blessed are the poor ones because yours is the kingdom of God. So it, it uh, makes it more, more personal. Um, and... Uh, yeah, direct. It's, it's speaking directly to uh, his audience. Anything else? Uh, Luke includes some some woes mm -hmm. uh, as we get further down to twenty four, twenty five. You know, woe, woe to you. So he, he brings up the other side. Uh, not only are certain um, people or, or certain situations blessed, um, there's an equal and opposite kind of woefulness there yeah. you can see that in matthew yeah yeah that's right yeah matthew has matthew has a lot more blessed <laughs> uh it yeah. says blessed nine times and but in in luke it just has four four blessings and then four woes all right well that's good no those are uh very um very good observations and so yeah, let's let's go back to uh, one of the things um, that what Tim mentioned there at the beginning. Uh, what how, you know, looking at the differences between Matthew and Luke, and we could we could phrase it this way: What are the Beatitudes doing? Uh, are they offering consolation or exhortation? You understand the difference? So, in other words, is Yeshua describing unfortunate circumstances and then offering encouragement to those in those situations? Or is he commending a certain type of attitude or behavior as something for which we ought to strive? Right? Is, is the point of these Beatitudes to say, well, we're supposed to be poor? Or is it saying... If you happen to be in a situation where you are poor, that's unfortunate, but you you are, you know, here's some encouragement for you, so you feel a little better about it. You know what I mean? Uh, which of these two is it? And, and you know, we could, it, we could read Matthew a little more in terms of the exhortation, right? It, it's, this sounds a little more like this is a character trait we should strive for, being poor in spirit. Uh, we should try to be poor in spirit. Whereas in Luke, it's like, are we really supposed to try to be poor? It's it's a little, you know, it, it seems harder to to uh, 
to interpret it that way. Are we supposed to try to be hungry? Are we supposed to be weeping? Um, are we supposed to try to get people to hate us? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going to suggest that there's there's a bit of both in both Matthew and Luke. There's a bit of consolation and exhortation. Yes, um, part of it is uh, giving encouragement to those who are in unfortunate circumstances, but there's also a message here that is an imperative for us, giving us uh, a lesson that we're supposed to learn and that we're supposed to grow from. What's so blessed about, about being poor or hungry or sad, first of all, right? Well, remember that from this passage that Yeshua quotes in uh, from Isaiah 61, if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the poor are the ones to whom the Messiah comes proclaiming the good news, right? The poor are the ones who hear the good news. Also, um, those who are hungry. Um, if we look back to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, uh, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I mean, this sounds very much like these Beatitudes that Yeshua is saying here right now, right? There's this divine reversal that God's going to exalt those who are lowly and he's going to humble those who are proud, right? He's going to bring down those who are lofty and arrogant and, and raise up those who are oppressed. And of course, in Mary's song, uh, this is talking, th those who are oppressed is Israel, right? Those who are haughty and arrogant, it doesn't say explicitly who they are, but we get the impression it's probably talking about Rome. Because um, it says that in verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel, Right? So it's identifying Israel with the ones who are oppressed and lowly and poor. And, and that's what Yeshua comes to preach to those who are poor. Remember, last week we talked about some of the social uh, stratification that existed at that time and how the vast majority of people that Yeshua ministered to were incredibly poor. So the hungry, the poor, are, you know, the poor are the ones that Yeshua is going to preach to. The hungry are the ones that God is going to fill. Um, you know, in the Beatitudes, however, uh, in, in Mary's song, the lowly is Israel. But in the Beatitudes, it's not so clear, right? There's a bit of a twist given to it because suddenly Yeshua, Yeshua's audience has a choice of whether they want to identify with that lowliness and suffering or with arrogance, pleasure, and prestige. And I mean, that's the challenge that's being presented here. Who are you going to identify with? Yeshua says, the poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Notice that all the good things are synonyms for the kingdom. You shall be satisfied in God's kingdom. You shall laugh, right? This is uh, um, uh, kingdom language here, right? Rejoice in that day and leap for behold, your reward is great in heaven, right? This is talking about the kingdom. So the reward is the kingdom, uh, but the opposite 
is to not get the kingdom. So there's these two, these two paths that's being presented to uh, Yeshua's listeners here. By the way, what does it mean to weep? What's it talking about when it says, you know, weeping now? Uh, in Matthew's Beatitudes, it has mourn. So, so mourning and weeping. What's, what, I, I personally don't think this is talking about weeping and mourning for just any reason. I think there are some possible allusions here going on to Isaiah 61, Ezekiel 9, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 61, this is that verse, that, that passage Yeshua reads from in, at Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, right? That's part of, part of it. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. Okay, there's uh, a bit of a, this is a, one possible way of translating the phrase. In Hebrew, we've got um, Avele Zion, literally the mourners of Zion. Uh, so it could be talking about mourners who are in Zion, like who reside there or uh, who are part of Zion in some way. Another way of interpreting it is those who mourn for Zion. And it's interesting that the Septuagint translates it that way. It talks about the, um, where are we here? Um, giving to the ones who mourn for Zion. Glory instead of, how does it translate it here? Uh, beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Let's look at another passage. Isaiah 66, verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. And this is slightly different, but I think it might still it might apply here as well. Uh, Ezekiel and has this vision where he sees uh, God's uh, judgment being executed um, uh, symbolically against Jerusalem and uh, he tells this uh, person with a scribe's kit uh, pass through the city throughout through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it and those are the ones who are spared from the judgment that comes right I think these these verses are significant for what we're talking about here because uh, it, it seems like Yeshua is presenting two paths for Israel. There's the path of lowliness and the path of arrogance. In Mary's song, it's Israel that's in the category of the lowly, the downtrodden, the oppressed, right? But there's that temptation to put yourself in that category of being arrogant, uh, being haughty, of pleasure, of... Um, uh, arrogance and prestige, right? And and this is the choice that Israel is being faced with, right? So, you know, it's like that verse about the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we have a self-righteous attitude, we define ourselves outside the scope of Messiah's ministry. Okay, 
we're running out of time, but I do want to touch on a couple of these quick and then um, then we'll wrap up here. So in this passage about loving loving our enemies. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Uh, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Um, I want to suggest that this is also uh, referring, uh, alluding to a prophecy. And again, this is from Isaiah. And this, this time it's from Isaiah 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word the one who is weary. Morning by warning, he wakens me. He wakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. We know this was ultimately fulfilled in Yeshua's suffering and his passion and ultimately in his death, right? And this ties in with the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53. Yeshua is calling us to follow him on this path of suffering, right? And also looking to God for a restitution, right? The Lord God helps me, therefore I've not been disgraced, right? He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. The Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? So when we're faced with people oppressing us and wronging us, we look to God to make it right instead of taking justice into matters into our own hands to make it right. I don't think this is a black and white call to pacifism in, in Luke, in this Sermon on the Plain or Sermon in the Mount. Um, Yeshua is calling us to look to God for a restitution. And more than that, Yeshua is calling us once again to embrace the path of suffering, the path of lowliness. And Yeshua is blazing this trail. We're merely called to follow him on that. All right, the tree and its fruit. It's the next passage. Well, he talks about judging. We'll have to skip over that. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a, a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Uh, figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Um, and it goes on. You know, this reminds us of John's sermon in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 to 9, about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's what Yeshua is calling us to do here. Um, fruit symbolizes our deeds and behavior. And in this Specifically, he, uh, Yeshua applies it to our speech, um, the kind of speech that comes out of our hearts. All right, and then the last section here, this is the end of the Sermon on the Plain. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, this is why I can't figure out how anyone can conclude that Yeshua doesn't expect us to obey this sermon, right? He's He's laying this out here is not good enough to give lip service to say, yeah, I follow Yeshua, he's my master, but I don't actually do what he says, right? We're called to follow him by obeying him. And then he gives this parable, uh, this uh, illustration. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is a, a very interesting metaphor that he uses. And I want to ask, is it possible that Yeshua is alluding to a specific house here in these verses? And would it help if I mentioned that both in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for house can also mean temple? In light of the emphasis on the temple that we've seen already throughout Luke and Acts, and it comes up over and over again, this is a big theme for Luke. I think it's fair to suggest that Yeshua is alluding to the destruction of the temple here. I mean, notice the dramatic emphasis on the fall. It fell, and the ruin of that house was great. There's a a real dramatic emphasis here. The response of the people to Yeshua's teaching is is the difference between the destruction and the preservation of the temple. Just like, in other words, Yeshua is preaching the same message that John the Baptist preached. John came warning the people about this coming wrath, this coming judgment that was coming. And I think he is alluding to what's going to happen in 70 CE, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and this great exile that's lasted thousands of years. Right? And... um, Just like John before him, Yeshua is warning the people that judgment is coming, and he's calling the people to repent, to turn away from wickedness, and to start practicing righteousness. This is a repentance program with the goal of averting judgment and receiving the kingdom. I believe that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. I believe that's the function of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, I mean, in a certain sense, I think Schweitzer was on to something with the way that he insisted Yeshua is preaching a literal kingdom and that this the Sermon on the Mount was meant to be preparation for that kingdom. Uh, now, Schweitzer was way out to lunch on a number of other major points, and uh, I won't go into that here. But, but I think this is meant to call the people to repentance, to prepare them for the kingdom, to usher in the kingdom, to avert um, the judgment. So Yeshua is placing before the people two choices, the kingdom or exile. Remember, the sermon begins with a reference to the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom of God. It ends with a reference to exile and the destruction of the temple. And these are the two choices. Of course, Yeshua's repentance program stands in stark contrast with a different vision that some Jews were proclaiming in those days, the zealots. These were essentially terrorists, right? They believed that they could usher in the kingdom through acts of violence. Yeshua is coming pointedly against the zealot revolution mentality. Uprising will not usher in the kingdom. Only God can do it. Israel's responsibility is to repent. Yeshua's message is a subversive, countercultural, anti-violence reform. And that's precisely the message of the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes extol lowliness, gentleness, peace. People who practice these things are promised to inherit the kingdom. So, 
we'll have to wrap it up there. We're going to have a lot more to say about this in upcoming weeks. I, I think that if we're receptive readers, which which we are, right, uh, we would notice that Luke has already given us a hint at how Yeshua's repentance program will be received. So we saw last week, Yeshua's visit to Nazareth in chapter 4 foreshadows the rejection of his teaching by the leaders of Israel. But as we'll see, even this is not the end of the story, right? Judgment, suffering, and exile may be coming for Israel, but so is ultimately redemption and restoration. And we'll see how Luke unfolds this drama as we continue. All right, so we'll stop there. Uh, any thoughts or questions? Does this interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain make sense, or does it seem out to lunch? Oh, I thought it was a very good, um, and it's uh, it's almost a, a for me anyway revolutionary um, interpretation because it's you know it, it, it actually ties in God's plan for Israel into this, which is really not seen very often within uh, the Christianity and within Christian circles. Right. It's also very um, it's also very reassuring or um, I don't, it's just it's in keeping with the kingdom and God's plan as opposed to addressing Christians. Right. Yeah, I mean, we've seen through, especially in the first two chapters of Luke, just this constant uh, reiteration of a very real physical uh, expectation for a literal political kingdom on earth and literal uh, deliverance from literal enemies, right? Deliverance from the oppression of, of Rome. And so it makes sense that... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, we haven't, we haven't just dropped all that, right? That hasn't just disappeared and it's no longer relevant now that we get into the meat of the gospel. It's like these, these themes still keep coming up. Well, I think that the Beatitudes are basically instruction for those of us that need hope. If you do this, then you'll receive this. You know, it's, it's quite simple, really. And uh, about... Uh, the question of how we can be like God, well, how we have to learn to love. Hmm. That's God's most important uh, offering he has for us is love. So, Yeah, thank you. That was uh, the first time I've seen that uh, the ruin of that house um, can be referring to the temple. That's uh, That was very good. I mean, it triangulates well with him saying at, in another place, uh, you know, uh, tear this down, and in three days I'll build it up again. Mm. Um, so then he's talking about his body, but he's also, we also know that it does get torn down. So you know he's 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 referencing that, or he's he's warning about that in other places. So that, that's that's good. Yeah, and I appreciated your uh, your question about what's the purpose and bringing up those those five, and um, yeah. I hope I can say um, both and, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, 
some of those, I mean, the, you know, the, uh, yeah, be obeyed literally. I mean, he comes right down to, you know, don't dismiss a jot or tittle. Um, but he also emphasizes the need for love. Um, but the details aren't peripheral. So can't, can't we have it both that, right. um, you know, love is, uh, is, is the most important. And upon that, you know, hangs the law and the prophets, but, um, that doesn't mean that, um, love is licentious, right? It's, it's, mm. it's lawful. It's, so anyway, yeah, thank you. It was very good. Yeah, yeah thank you. That's, uh, um, uh, yeah, you, you brought up the what Yeshua says about uh, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it again and how it's, uh, you know, that's referring to his body. But in a sense, it is also referring to the temple too. And it, it's, it's interesting, I th and I think Luke develops this in his gospel. I, we're, I'm going to uh, try and argue that as we continue through the series, that what happens to Yeshua, the suffering that he goes through, is a so, uh, like living out the suffering and exile of the Jewish people. Um, and, and so... Um, in that sense, I think Yeshua's resurrection also points to the resurrection, uh, uh, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of the Jewish people. Um, yeah, we're going to try and tease that out yes, as he's, we keep going. Right. And he's the quintessential Israelite, isn't he? Yes. Out of Egypt, I called my son. <laughs> right. Yeah, good. No, that's that, that's great. All right. Well, I guess it's getting a bit late here, so I'll say good night. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.